The Mike Tomano Happening. A guy is uh, rolling down the hospital corridor on a gurney. And it's just, he's just a head and a neck. And the surgeon says, I'm pretty sure we got it all. <laughs> The joke seemed like once upon a time, every gathering included at least one person rattling off the latest joke they heard at the bar or at work. The joke, a tried and true icebreaker, the reprieve from banal small talk or a lull in conversation. The joke has been a remedy for doldrums, a pick-me-up for a pal under the weather or a friend going through a rough patch. A good joke or two always lighten the load for a long workday. The joke has been there to poke the seriousness of life right in the eyes deflate the gravity of tragedy and kick the grimness of day-to-day living right in the dangling doodads. The dirty joke, a rite of passage, the mischievous sensation of a profane or even pornographic zinger entered into the world of every kid, especially young boys. Teenage boys could grab a few gems from the worn-out pages of Playboy and Hustler magazines that they found in the neighborhood perv's garbage can, or share the latest naughty knee slapper from their crazy uncle, who told it to them under the promise of discretion. So have you heard any good ones lately? Today's stand-up comics rely more on anecdotal musings, lifestyle recognition, ruminations, and socio-political rants, more so than the old-school joke men and women of yesteryear. Now, no doubt the comedy scene has evolved, but there are still some comics practicing the fine art and time-honored tradition of writing and performing original jokes. Anthony Jeselnik is a modern master of macabre and unsettling setups and devastating punchlines, with no subject taboo and no boundary left uncrossed. Seinfeld loves the format of jokes woven into his observational humor. The late Mitch Hedberg, who practiced the craft of the surreal one-liner brought to prominence by the amazing Stephen Wright, he was a joke teller. Premise, setup, punchline, laugh, boom. Morgan Murphy comes to mind. Her sublime jokes kind of hint at a personal confession. Really good. Jimmy Carr rattles off dirty joke book classics, and Carlos Mencia steals jokes. But I digress. Some stand-ups hold joke-telling slightly above prop comedy. The truth is, it's much more entertaining to hear finely crafted writing in the form of a joke than self-analysis and half-baked political rants any day, at least for this reporter. I mean, Rodney was a joke-teller, Who was funnier than Rodney Dangerfield? Even the kings of comedy, Richard Pryor and George Carlin, sprinkled jokes into their brilliant social commentary and storytelling, as did Lenny Bruce, the guy who started it all. So here's to the joke tellers, whether it's the blue-collar yuckster at the bar or the seasoned professional on stage. Because sometimes we don't need a message with our humor. Sometimes we just need a good laugh. Jokes have been around forever. They come from the earth. They come from reality. They come from observation. They come from frustration, aggravation, humiliation. And whatever the origin of a joke, chances are if it's entered into society and it's not obviously from the mind of a famous comedian, its birth is impossible to trace. But some jokes are archived in our world history. Journalist Jim Holt dived into the joke's history and unearthed some killers. Here's one. Ready? This is from 5th century Greece. Said a young man to his randy wife, Wife, what shall we do? Eat or make love? His wife replies, Whichever you like. There's no bread. (laughs) No? The first written joke, according to researchers at the British Museum, 
dates back to 2600 BC when King Snurfu of Egypt was given a roll of papyrus from the court magician which read, How do you entertain a bored pharaoh? You sail a boatload of young women dressed only in fishing nets down the Nile and urge the pharaoh to go catch a fish. (laughs) Well, okay, maybe it's a little dated. Hey, maybe it's my delivery. But suffice to say, King Snurfu shat himself laughing. Even old Billy Shakespeare could weave a joke into one of his timeless classics. Let's relive this guffaw generator from Macbeth. And this introduced a knock-knock joke to the world. Ready? Knock-knock. Who's there in the name of Beelzebub? Here's a farmer who hanged himself on the expectation of plenty. Come in time. Have napkins enough about you. Here, you'll sweat for it. Too soon? Well, have you heard any good ones lately? In some circles, the joke is frowned upon, especially those that unabashedly find jolly in sex, gender, race, or creed. Times have changed. In today's culture, one might cause enough offense to not only destroy the fragility of a helpless victim within earshot, but see their own life destroyed in retaliation. I'll sum it up in a poem that I wrote. Once a joke was told to me, I left the room, said not for me, and left the others to their glee, noting subjectivity. Today, when jokes cause some to cringe, it leaves both parties on the fringe. One gets canceled hastily, the other, 12 years therapy. This episode of the Mike Tomano Happening is a celebration of the joke, be it body or bold or a thousand times told. Jackie Martling is a living, breathing museum of the joke. He has collected, cataloged, and performed thousands over almost half a century in show business and has the formats of the numerous styles of jokes so ingrained in his mind and soul that he was the head writer and creator of some of the funniest moments on the most successful radio show in history. Well, for decades, Jackie the Joke Man Martling has been making millions of people laugh. He's a premier stand-up comic, a writer, and an entrepreneur. We're going to get into all that with him today. As I said in my introduction, his dedication to craft and also his independent spirit has been an inspiration to performers in all kinds of genres, and it's a pleasure to have him on. Jackie, thanks for being with us today. I'm I'm not sure if I can even speak after that kind of introduction. <laughs> I'm like, I'm looking around, you know, the old... Look over your shoulder. Who's who's he talking about? You know. You know, it's weird. The first time I heard of you, it was long before, you know, you came to prominence on the Howard Stern show as head writer. But the big radio personality in Chicago in the 80s was Steve Dahl, 70s, 80s, and throughout Uh the 90s. And he was really one of the first to kind of do that big personality radio and he used to call your joke line and, and give you plugs all the time. And I was like, you know, you, I heard you say this on an interview, but you didn't give, do you, could, do you have an approximate date? It had to be after 79. Yeah, probably mm, 82, 84, around that area. So it would have been after Rick D. He probably, he, he might've got wind of it from Rick D's, but he might've got wind of it independently. Um. When did I first hit Chicago? I, you know, I don't really know, but it, no, but it, it it's amazing. It went around like lightning even before Rick Dees got a hold of it. Right. And I didn't even know Steve Dahl got a hold of it. Yeah. Um, oh, yeah. And, and a lot of times he wouldn't play the punchline. He'd make you guess the punchline. It was, you know, and, and that was your 922 wine. It was, you know, that was one of the first ways that you 
branched out from what you were doing. We're going to get back and, into the beginning and, of it all. But yeah, if Dahl would dials, do it. If somebody dials right now, 516-922-9463, that's 516-922-WINE, it is still operating. It's been it's been 42 years. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> and you'll get... and I, you know what? The only reason I have that, Michael, is so when somebody talks about it, I can say, it's still operating. And the fun thing about that is now everybody has a cell phone, so they can literally punch it in and hear, hey, this is Jackie, you know, which I love it when you use your finger. And they're like, holy Christ, it's 1985. Right. Use your <laughs> finger. Right. But you were you were right on the cusp of that because the, the, the 900 numbers were huge back then. And yours gave new jokes every day and, and is still doing it now. But back then you didn't have the technology. So what, how did you do that? You put a bunch of answering machines together. It's it's uh, I, I always am at risk of boring people. But uh, you can always stop me. But way back then, um, there was no comedy on Long Island. There was a club called Richard M. Dixon's White House Inn where, like, Eddie Murphy started and Bob Nelson and Rob Bartlett and me and a bunch of guys. But Dixon would not pay us. So me and this guy, Richie Minervini, who is still my good friend to this day, who uh, actually lied to me, which wound up getting me a gig with Rodney Dangerfield because we're all such low-life scum comedians <laughs> um, we went to a club owner and said can we do jokes here on can we do comedy here on a Tuesday night we'll do the show and we'll charge at the door and you can just you know make a fortune from the drinks and the guy was like yeah sure and like of course for the opening night we're packed what happened was I said Richie now we got the opportunity how the hell are we going to get anybody here we don't have any money and I got the bright idea you know what I'll do? I'll get a phone line and tell a joke and then say where we're working and tell another joke, which is basically radio, yeah. television. You know, uh, give it a little content, give it a little advertising, give it a little content. So I still remember I was walking up the stairs to my mother's attic, which was the first joke land, and it came to me in, in an instant. I said, use your finger. What a great name. And I went to the local place where they where you got phone numbers, but and the local numbers were all eaten up because the area was growing in leaps and bounds. So the only numbers they had started with nine. So I looked at nine two two nine, and I'm trying to spell things out. And the girl wouldn't tell me what was available, so I had to guess. And I'm looking, and there's not a lot that starts with W, right? You know. And I said, "What about nine four six three? And she said, "You can have it." So there it was, 922-WINE, and it was instantly busy. I got a PhoneMate answering machine. That was the name of the company, PhoneMate. It was a one-minute answering machine, and I put it there in my mother's attic, and it was instantly busy all the time. And, you know, if you know anything about – well, you know media. Like, it, on, in, as far as a telephone company, they are the first people – the people that work there, the first people to know anything that's new on the block. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? So after it was so busy constantly, like you could, I actually have tapes with people like, Jackie, we can't get through to that machine. It's always busy. I called the phone company and said, listen, I need a second line where it rolls over if the first one's busy. And the, I swear to God, nobody ever, my stories really do sound like I'm making them up, especially as time goes by, because it sounds like I've had so much time to invent stories. But I said to the guy, I need a rollover line. He said, I'm sorry. You're not in a business zone. You're in a residential zone. And I said, come on. And he goes, wait a minute. Are you the guy with the jokes? Swear he, to God, Mike. Wow. And I said, yeah. He said, hold on. 
He said, you know what? We're going to give you a rollover line. So they gave me a rollover line. It was instantly busy all the time. I called back and said, I got to have more lines. The foreman came or his manager came to my house and came upstairs because they wanted to see this operation. <laughs> and here I had the two phone mate machines. So they gave me two more lines. So I got more phone mate machines. Then I called up and said, I got to have more. And the new foreman came. And he, they just could not believe this operation in my mother's attic. I don't know if you've seen the pictures. I'll send you pictures. And then uh, Nancy came to work with me, and I called. I said, we've got to have more lines. And they said, all right, Jackie, we're going to – but, you know, by the second call, I was on a first-name basis with you. I've always been on a first-name basis with right. everybody. They said, all right, we're going to take you up to 10, but that's it. Mm. So for a couple of years, there were 10 – phone mate answering machines <laughs> in a row. Right. I swear to God, I think I kept them in business because I always had a couple of spare machines. I always had tons of tapes. At first, you know, you push the button and you record a minute. Right. If you make a mistake, you got to wait for that thing to come around to start it again. Then when I had a second one, I'd push them both with my two, with each, uh, each with one finger and I had the microphones taped together but once again, if you made a mistake, you had to start over. Then I, when I got up to four, I could exactly reach <laughs> the four the four record buttons by spreading my thumb and my pinky on both machines, I mean on both hands, push all four at the same time, and record the jokes. But when we went to six, somehow there was some kind of, of – it's not supposed to work, but somehow my Nakamichi cassette recorder – allowed me to record onto an endless cassette from a reel to reel. So you just had to time it and stop it. And by then Nancy's working with me and she would make dubs. And I'm telling right. you, we changed it every day, seven days a week for something like five years. It's I know it's not believable, but I mean, it was crazy. And But it, people depended on it. And there's so many stories like... You know, guys that say, oh, you know, I'd come in every morning with a joke and I'd crack up my secretary. And then yesterday I walked in, I started the joke and she finished it for me. And she said, I heard about that stupid joke, Mark. <laughs> so it became a thing, but that was your, so you you and these guys are, you know, and, and people doing Long Island uh, gigs and you're, you had this innovation spirit where you said, we're going to do it ourselves because no one's going to help us. We have to no figure out a way. It, it didn't exist, and instantly it was busy. Uh, the, the restaurant was owned by Jerry Cooney, the boxer's brother. Oh, boy, So yeah. Cooney was always up there, and Harry ne – not, not Harry Nielsen. Who's the other guy? Harry Chapin used to come by, and we just had so much fun, and it was just – that show went for like 15 years. That, that show grew into the East Side Comedy Club, which was the first full-time venue on Long Island. And what happened was – Way back then, it's hard for people to remember, Mike, but in 19... I had a band in the 70s. Right, right. There was not one second of video of my band. In 1978, when we broke up, there was no such thing as video. By 1980, everybody had a VCR machine, and a lot of people had cameras. It just went so fast. And in 1979, cable came on, okay? So all of a sudden, you're sitting in the living room watching television and there's bare boobs on HBO <laughs> right. your parents you know it was so it was so brand new and when I started 922 Wine I 
I started it out very dirty. And they called me up like the first or second day, and they said, Jackie, you can't have that on there. It's too dirty. I said, all right, I'll clean it up. <laughs> and like two days later, the guy called again and said, Jackie, you got to clean it up some more. And I don't know how much I cut it down, but I cut it. But then all of a sudden, cable hit, HBO hit. The whole world started to loosen up. So slowly but surely, I was making the jokes dirtier and dirtier and dirtier. Well, running concurrently with this, in those days, if you wanted to make a long-distance call, people had what was called a credit card number, which was so long, and you had to dial in this whole number because long-distance calls cost a fortune back then. Right. You know. Now, my my joke line was in my mother's attic, so it was just like calling my house in East Norwich. But if you called from Kansas, it was like a long-distance call from Kansas. So these people had this group of people that always were ripping off. They always had new credit card numbers, and these people knew where the the seance uh, phone numbers were and the weather numbers right. and, uh, and all it, you know, th they were nuts, you know, and they got hold of my 922 Y number. And one of these girls in California called Rick D's and said, you really got to call this guy and, and listen to his jokes. So I, he, without me knowing he did it. Right. So I didn't know it, but he was calling my joke line and he was also putting the jokes. I'm sure you're aware that he used to have, um, he wasn't the only one, had the Rick D's weekly top 40. Right, right. Which in those days, they actually put on disc and mailed the discs like to Chicago and yeah. New York and Denver. And on like a Saturday or a Sunday, whoever was operating the board would play the discs of the Rick D's top 40 countdown. And he would, he would sprinkle it with some of my jokes, okay? And it was so funny because one day my sister had her, her sister-in-law lived in, I think, Wisconsin. And she was out there with her husband. And all of a sudden I came on the radio and her little daughter, Jessie, who's like three years old, <laughs> pointed up and said, Uncle Ha Ha. And my sister's like, holy mackerel. So she calls me, she says, geez, we just heard 922 wine on the radio. And I said, that's great. What were the jokes? And she told me the joke. Huh. And I said, that's, that's impossible. That, wasn't a, that was on 922 Wine weeks ago. She said, listen, I know your jokes as well as you do. I said, all right. Well, it was like the, the delay, ago, yeah, from, the, from yeah, pressing couple, it to disc. I got gotcha. you. Right. A couple of weeks later, my buddy said, I heard 922 Wine on Z100 in South Jersey. What were the jokes? He told me. I said, that's impossible. What had happened was Rick Tees was calling mm -hmm. and putting it on his local uh, – you know his his number one joke, uh, his number one radio show in L.A. But he's also putting on this, and that that was the delay. But who knew? Yeah. And then one day he called me up, and he said, "Jackie, I've been uh, calling your joke line and putting the jokes on and uh, giving you credit, but uh, the jokes have gotten too dirty. Right? Could you possibly, you know, do jokes just for me that aren't so bad?" And I said, "Okay." And he said, how about this? I'll say that you're a crazy dentist from Encino. And I said, Rick, how's that help me? He said, well, let me think about it. He called me back the next day. He says, how about this? He says, oh, and by now, I'm on the Stern Show once a week. You know, this is running concurrent. Everything's running, you know, alongside. Right. He said, how about this? <clears throat> you're Jackie the Joke Man Martling, the crazy guy, the comedian from New York that knows all the jokes. And I said, sold. Yeah. Yeah. And meanwhile, when I started with Howard, my name was Jackie Nine Two Two Wine Martling. And after a couple of weeks, he said, "Jackie, I can't say that anymore because we got complaints 
because people's kids are calling that joke line. It's too dirty. So all of a sudden, I was no longer Jack the Nine to do wine. And then all of a sudden, a couple months later, I became Jackie the Joke Man Martling, which was so funny because everybody assumed that Howard named me that. or I, And meanwhile, it was Rick Dees that named me Jackie the Joke Man Martling. And when he started, he used to tell... <laughs> He used to tell his audience that 516-922-9463 was Tom Selleck's home phone. <laughs> real radio innocent, I'm telling you. Mike, the, 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 the machines it blew exploded. Up. <laughs> now listen, you, you, you're a techie enough guy. The 10th machine was my girlfriend's answering machine that actually had a counter. So, it you know, you have eight messages or you have 32 messages. Right. And it was two digits, so it went to 99. That was the 10th machine in the list of, in the, in the lineup of 10 machines. And it was a rollover system, okay, which means if you call and machine number one is busy, it goes to number two. If you call and three of them are busy, it goes to number four. Right. But if in the course of that time, the minute runs out and one is available again, that's the one that rings next. <clears throat> so the only way the 10th machine went off was if all the other nine machines were were going at the same time within the span of a minute. And that, that machine, the 10th machine, went to 99 a couple times a day. Holy cow. Which means, if you think about the, 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 math, uh, the yeah. curve, yeah, because, you know, if it got up to seven and then it, it ran out, that didn't – we were somewhere in 10,000, 5,000. Mm. We had thousands and thousands of calls. And what was great is I'd stick in a a, a, a Y connector, and, the, and it, so it would ring, and, you know, I put an actual phone on one of the lines. It'd ring, I'd say, hello, don't, don't, don't hang up. This is Jackie. And, of course, nine times out of ten they hung up. Because people always call them from work and they think they're getting caught, you know? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Everybody asks, where are you calling from? They call from all over the country, sometimes from Canada, from where, you know, from Paris. You wouldn't believe where the calls were from. And most of the people had no idea who I was, had never heard of 922 Wine, except it was somebody told me to call this. Somebody, I heard about this. Right. Story, you know? It was, it, it just, it was, because it was a free call. Right. You know, it, except for the long distance, it, it, it was just, you know, instant jokes. You, 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 you know, if you're talking to a girl at the bar, you go in to the phone booth and call and you get a joke and you come back and tell the girl a joke, which we all know is the greatest entree. So it was just, it was just spectacular. And it just kept going and going and going. Yeah. And then, then they it started a co another comedy club on Long Island, uh, called Governors, and somebody said, who are we going to get to run the show? And they said, why don't we get the guy with the joke line? That was it. That And it did so exactly what you want. Yeah. Right, all the thousands and thousands of dollars. I mean, it's cost me a fortune. People are like, <laughs> oh, you must have retired from that. I said, no, it's cost me. It's cost you, crazy yeah. Crazy amounts of money, you know. I, I still remember the joke. So circa 1982, I'm in high school, come home, listen to the Steve Dahl show in the afternoon. He's, he's going, hey, let's call Jackie the Joke Man, dials up 922 wine. And I still remember a joke from that. It, it, it was uh, the boss is nervous. Two of his best employees, he has to cut back, and it's Jack and Sue, and he's so nervous because he has to sit him down. I'll let you tell the joke because you tell a lot better. Go ahead. <clears throat> Again, he says to Sue, uh, 
times are hard, I'm going to have to either lay you or jack off. And she says, well, you better jack off. I have my period. <laughs> I'm sure that's. I, she probably said I have a headache. Well, I remember I remember Dahl played it up until I have to lay you or Jack off, and then he said you're going to have to call the line to get the rest of the uh, the punchline. That's so great. You know, now, now years ago, I was working in Chicago, and I forget what, but I, you know, at one point I worked the Chicago Theater. I was doing, I wasn't, you know, the Stern Show was big enough that I actually worked the Chicago Theater, and I, what was the little old theater that was so oh, famous you did a show at the rialto and we the station i worked at at the time broadcast from the rialto theater so we would get the list of everybody that was coming so you know it was it could be three dog night it could be bobby vinton and i see jackie martling and i said to the woman i said we have got to promote this we've got to be part of the sponsorship and she said well it's from wckg because that's where the stern show was and they have an exclusivity on it and i actually got in touch with some friends at CKG and said, Hey, we're going to promote this show too, because we love Jackie Martling and they were totally cool with it. And, and that'll bring me to a story in a little while about the relationship with Stern that, uh, that I, the show, not, I didn't know how. Uh, yeah, but... no, no. I, I heard some of it and it's very intriguing and I have plenty of questions to you. The one question what was the name of the older theater? It's the Rialto. The Rialto no, Theater. No, no, no. Oh. There was a theater right in the heart of Chicago. Was it the Vic? The, the old Vic. Yes, God, you that. did a show there, too, and you killed it. Boy, what a beautiful place that is. It looks like it's haunted. I can still remember that it was like six beers for a dollar or something. That was, <laughs> uh, that was so great. All right, I, I just always needed to know what that is. So the Rialto... A lot of, you know, I went to school at Michigan State, and a lot of guys from my old band came. And I don't know if you remember, but there was a guy who worked at Fox who had a, a, a business account. And he came to the show, and afterwards we all went, was there a gambling casino or something Yeah, there? yeah, the, uh, uh, there was the Empress, and then there was the, uh, I forgot the one that's downtown now, Harrah's. There was a Harrah's casino two blocks away. Oh, that- that's where we were, and I was there with all my old people. <laughs> and this guy from Fox was so excited to meet me and hang out that he ran drinks to us the whole night so I could sit there and talk to my friends that I hadn't seen in decades. It, it, just one of the great... And I asked you a question, and uh, you didn't answer it, but you probably didn't know the answer, but there was some girl, probably from <laughs> your station, that was in charge of that night, and she... You know, she was in charge of picking me up in a limo and bringing me back. You have any idea who that was? It could have been Carol. She was on my show, um, Dark and Beautiful. Yeah, you know, I don't remember. I just remember she was great, and we laughed our asses off and had so much fun. I don't even, I, I, you know, you know, I got so drunk, I don't even know if we made out or anything. <laughs> But after all these decades, I'd love to say, so you don't really have an idea. I don't remember. That could have been through CKG. Like I said, there were two stations and they let us promote it because. Oh, oh, right, right. And CKG probably paid for the limo. They would have paid for limo. I didn't have that kind of budget. All right. Well, it it was a great, great We'll track her down. I never had a bad time in Chicago. I, I, I couldn't believe I'm working the Chicago theater and I'm in the green room. And usually it says, you know, uh, you know, uh, Carol Leifer on the wall. And here it said, uh, you know, Frank Sinatra, Dean and Jerry, they all signed the wall. You know, it's like, what What am I doing here? Pinch me. You know? Right, right. Beautiful theater. Well, Chicago oh, embraces what comedy. Say, what I went to say was, when I was doing one of those shows, 
whoever was booking me said uh, he called Steve Dahl to try and get me on the show. And Steve Dahl said, uh, I don't really want to have Jackie up here. I ha I've had him on before and it didn't really work out. I never met the guy in my life. So I don't, I don't know whether he thought it'd be helping Howard. I, I, I have no idea what, or if she had something in his ass for me, <clears throat> but I was always curious because uh, I heard nothing but great stuff about him and Gary Meir. Gary Meyer, yeah. Steve Dahl and Gary Meyer, yeah. Well, I, I never met him, but, uh, you know, people <clears throat> besides you, did, do you know Dan Filato? Oh, sure. Dan's a great producer. He, I, The last time I talked to Dan, he was working with Harry Shearer on his uh, – his, I guess it's a NPR show that he does every week. The show, it's a great how, how show. How long ago are you talking about? Uh, this is probably ten years ago. I think he oh, he actually he went was working with Artie. He, he was, was working with Artie Lang. Yes, yes, yeah. He was producing Artie Lang's uh, <clears throat> podcast and direct TV show, and me and Dan hit her up, and he told me how uh, uh, somebody used to record Steve Dahl's show and, and send the send the cassettes to Howard. Yeah, yeah. You, know, I, you hear all this stuff in retrospect, you know, it's crazy, you know. You could hear, um, you know, being in Chicago, we had so many personalities. So I think by the time Stern got here, it was a, it was tough for him because we had been exposed to, you know, quote unquote shock jocks and guys who were pushing the envelope. And there were some bits that Howard did that were exactly the same as what Steve was doing. And so people <clears throat> kind of raised an eyebrow to that, you know. Well, yeah, you know, there was a thing out here called the Simone phone where he took three calls and fixed somebody up, with a, you know, and Howard just reinvented it as dial-a-date. Dial-a-date was one of the main things that put him on the map. And then, uh, you know, my friend Dennis Blair goes, yeah, no, I did Simone phone in 1977 or so, you know. Yeah. Like, you know, but everything, everything circles around, you know. Yeah, and guys were very competitive back then. You know, Rick D starts playing your 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 joke line, Dahl starts doing it, and so people were definitely checking out because that was the golden age of personality radio. The eighties were you know it on was fire. So fun, so fun. I actually went out and did a couple of Rick D's shows at the uh, Universal Amphitheater. I mean, he was he was monstrous. You know, yeah. he came riding onto the stage in a big white limo i don't still don't know how they did that you know like uh but of course he paid me peanuts you know yeah it happens in radio you know the thing about rick d's the first time i heard him was i think it was in memphis i was visiting family in tennessee and uh, i was like this guy's great because i wanted to be when i was in sixth grade i decided i'm gonna be a radio guy you know that was my thing and so uh, I, I listened as many as i could and it's it's uh it's you know going back to your well I'm gonna get all over the place so we're just gonna hop back and forth I mean you, no that's fine with me that's how I like it you're talking about Chicago you know and and in in the seven late seventies throughout the mid eighties the, the comedy boom the stand up boom so yeah the big cities had you know Chicago we had Emo Phillips Judy Tenuta Uncle Larry Reeb who was fantastic and of I, course. I, we had Have second we city. Talk about Uncle Larry, or did you just say that out of, out of the blue? No, I'm just looking at the uh, the scene from you know the time. The the people who were no, always but I'm playing. Saying, did you know that I knew him? I, I would I would imagine you knew him. Yeah. How, how well do you know Larry Reeb? Well, we shared the same hooker. <laughs> <laughs> That's and intimate. I gave, I gave her a stump the joke man T-shirt, and I was hoping that Leno would be walking down the. Street, on down Wells Avenue and see a hooker wearing size stump jacket and joke. 
<laughs> she did more than stump them. There you go. Oh my God. That's funny. Oh my God. And well, I got. I got. I had such a good time with Uncle Larry. We went to a Cubs game and almost got in a in a brawl with. Uh, we were with. Did you ever hear of Ultra Fan? Ultra Fan at the Cubs game. Yeah. The guy Mike. He wore a big. He wore superhero outfit with a big. Sure. Blue. I think he passed away decades ago. But you know, they loved him till the third inning when the Cubs were behind twenty to nothing, and they started throwing stuff at him. You know. Right. So much fun. So much fun. That's wow. too funny. Yeah, and well, and then you had Boston, had you know Bobcat and Stephen Wright and Paula Poundstone, but in Long Island, you guys started that. So there were, like you said, there was no comedy clubs. You know, but they, you know, everybody, they all, all the guys were that were anybody. They all, you know, worked in the city. <clears throat> For a long time, there was a whole demarcation of city comics and Long Island comics because you know some of the guys used props, and I told jokes, and you know, you're not real comedians. And then all of a sudden, we had paying gigs on Long Island and all of a sudden we were good guys you know right these guys are running to, from Catch a Rising Star to the comic strip for five dollars and we're paying them fifty dollars and they're getting laid and they're smoking pot and they're getting drunk and like you know <laughs> these guys are nice guys you know so much fun I was honored to uh, be invited to the preview of your uh, soon to be released there's a documentary that they made on you that uh, is just really a beautifully done piece about your career and uh, your personal life. And uh, it's called... I'm so, I'm so glad you liked it. Oh, I loved I, it. I felt, uh, you know, there's a lot of there's a lot of celebs and stuff hanging out watching this, and I was I was feeling pretty cool. I was like, yeah, I'm in with hip people here. And I'll tell you, the the the, the thing that I caught from that was so much about your personal life but in in um and also with your book bow to stern comedy writing for you i think it came and tell me if i'm wrong because your brain is a steel trap for jokes for decades and you 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 had all these jokes that it was so easy for you to put the science of joke writing behind it you knew premise punchline delivery and so when you're when you're sitting there and we know for 18 20 years you're sitting there writing the funny lines for howard stern you had yeah, to, and you know what mike what's so funny is my act is old jokes people say how many of those jokes you write i say you know virtually none they're all the greatest jokes from all time i would say if there's a nuclear war the only thing left is going to be cockroaches and my jokes okay <laughs> because they've been around for all time it's really hard to to make it come up with a new wheel you know but by knowing all the setups and the punchlines and right. what's funny, <clears throat> the entire time I sat with Howard, I never wrote down a joke for him. It was all comments that a funny guy would make if you were sitting around the table. So right. here I'm making my living. I'm making a fortune with Howard Stern with stuff that's just being written on the fly, not planned at all in advance. Meanwhile, my act is old stale jokes that I do a good job of selling. It was such a such a contradiction in terms but not really because if that's how your mind works right you know if you go for the funny you go for the funny you know what i mean yeah and and you telling a joke is it's in the it's the delivery it's the presentation which is uh is masterful you know you know i love when i'm doing a show and somebody comes up you know you started telling that joke about the the wooden Indian or something. He says, I, I, God, I'm already laughing at the joke. And I'm like, what am I doing? I've heard him tell that 20 times. 
which to me is a great compliment. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's like uh, it's like watching the honeymooners. Yeah, the, my fair lady. You know? Yeah, you know, you know what's coming, but you're still gonna laugh. It's all in the del- and you, as a performer, you always make a crowd smile because you're having such a good time up there. And the worst thing is to see. You know, a comedian who maybe is having a bad day or doesn't dig the crowd and they just kind of give up on the, and they're just kind of going through it by rote. You've never done that as far as I can tell. No, you know, because, the, you know, I, I hate saying that because, it, you know, we're all so superstitious. I mean, I have never in 42 years said, oh, I'm going to kill tonight, you know, because that's the kiss of death. Like, you know, people say, do you get nervous? You don't get nervous, nervous, but you anticipate. You know, and as you get, you get better and better and more popular, it doesn't get easier because, all right, instead of just going out and getting away with it, when people are paying forty-five dollars to see you, you got to go out there and nail them. You got, you got to kill them. Yeah. You know, I remember I was in Las Vegas with Rodney Dangerfield, and we got off the airplane and went to the Aladdin Hotel, and you know, you always think, you know, when you get to a certain degree of prominence, it's all over. You know. We the first thing he did was walked up to the ticket booth. How was sales? How are we doing? How are we doing? <laughs> right, right. And I swear to God, I can remember it like it, it went through my mind. Holy crap! It never ends. Mm. It never ends. Never it, goes it, away. Yeah. And, and but I guess that's a good thing, you know. You know, there was an so. interesting, and I want people to get your book. It's available on Amazon. You can get a Kindle. You can get it. Um, hardcover, softcover, whatever your preference. Yeah, it's on Audible, but you got to say it's. The joke man bow to Stern because if somebody Googles bow to Stern, they get a seventh grade sailing manual. <laughs> I swear to you, I swear to you. Did Jackie Martling I... write this? Yeah, right. Yeah, what the? Something changed. Well, uh, but but there's a great story, and, and you're talking about Rodney and still, you know, worrying about the door and still, how's the crowd? Uh, you talked about how he was talking about being depressed and uh, you were saying, what, what are you talking about? The, the, the audience ate it up. They, they loved it. And he, uh, I don't know if this, <clears throat> yeah, uh, now we're, are we tethered by anything or is this, we can say whatever you can we want say whatever you want. Yeah. This is open. I don't know if this was in the book. I'm not, I might've stopped short of this, but uh, he said, I'm, oh, I'm so depressed. And I said, you just had two amazing shows. You just blew away two audiences. How could you be depressed? He says, oh, it's like eating a broad. You know, what's in it for me? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I said, holy Christ, that's the funniest thing I've ever heard. Yeah, yeah. And he was ready for it. He knew exactly what it was. Oh, you, God. You know, you're... you're uh, early in your career so you you make the you, you know and this has been told you make the transition from a musician you guys start telling jokes you're kind of doing this grassroots artistic movement where you guys are out there playing these clubs and how did you originally because rodney played a big impetus in uh in kind of kicking it in high gear for you i remember seeing you the first time i saw jackie martling i mean obviously i knew who he was from the stern show and the uh listening to doll and hearing him play your uh joke line but uh the first time i think i saw you was on a was it a special was yeah it was a special with rodney dangerfield no I, I was never on a rodney when you might have saw the red fox special. the red red okay yeah well let me think here there was uh there were two vhs tapes that floated around let's the dirtiest dozen 
which you were on. Yeah, yeah, comedy's Dirtiest Dozen. Yeah, I was on last. And Red Fox's Dirty, Dirty Jokes. Red Fox's Dirty, Dirty Jokes, which also had uh, Dice on it. Yeah. Dice, Robert Schimmel. Yeah. Dice swears that that video is what made him. Oh, really? Um, well, I, I said, at least when they reach for you, they miss me. Jesus <laughs> Christ. <laughs> hey, I'll tell you but, something. Uh, Everybody has a great Red Fox story if they've if they've worked with him. I had Tom Leopold on the program recently, and he oh, told I a love great Tom. one. I got to know him recently. I love that guy. A beautiful guy, and he told a great Red Fox story. But uh, what was it like working? Because he he was kind of the MC of that uh, dirty dirty joke. Yeah, but you know there wasn't a lot of interaction. But you know, I wasn't a comedy guy. I'm a joke guy, so right. I wasn't. You know, I, you know, of course, that you had a curiosity. Listen to Robert Klein, Child of the Fifties and Class Clown with George Collin, but I wasn't a guy that bought those records and studied them, and, you know, just somebody would have them. But I was a guy that had every Red Fox album because me and my partner, we played songs, mostly original songs, and told jokes in between. That was our act. Two acoustic guitars and Marx Brothers routines and jokes. So nobody ever told us that comedians do the same act to a different crowd every night. So we were working to the same crowds week after week. So we did a different act every week. Right. So we were scraping and clawing and doing everything we could to get new jokes. So of course I had every Red Fox album. Right. And then of course I put out my albums and you know, I was like the new kid on the block. And so when I met Red, before he introduced me, he says, yeah, Jackie Marlin, I heard about you and your albums. I heard about you. You know, and I, was, yeah. I was like, wow, Red Fox knows about my albums. You know, and I still have his introduction. You know, here's Jackie Martin, the inventor of Dial a Dirty Joke. <laughs> <laughs> you know, those Red Fox albums. Yeah, that's where you got your jokes. People, when we were kids, we would get great jokes from Red Fox. There was a guy named Gene Tracy, the truck driver guy. Right. He, there was Gene Tracy, and there was also a Gene Tracy Jr. Gene you know, Tracy Jr. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that was the same thing. And there was our uh, G. David Howell from down in. Uh, you know, there's a couple of those guys, you know, that just had the <clears throat> the truck stops had, you know, barrelfuls of their cassettes. You know, they had barrelfuls of my cassettes, too, which I didn't know until I found out by accident. You know, these people print these up, print up the cassettes and sell them out the back door and make a fortune. And you have no idea. Right, you know? right, right, right. But that's always that's always going on. Yeah. But uh, it was such a thrill to meet Red Fox because I knew all the out. You know, one of the things <clears throat> I tell little old lady jokes and there was a little old lady going into the butcher shop. And then there was another joke about a little old lady in the butcher shop. And I said, you know what? These fit perfectly together. <laughs> so I put the two jokes together. And then like later, you know, a month, a year, two years, how much later I was listening to a Red Fox album. And he did the same thing with the same two jokes. And in my mind, I was like, I guess I know what I'm doing. <laughs> you know what you're doing. You know what you're doing. When Red Fox is taking your stuff, that's excellent. Speaking of another yeah. Fox, no, in the... he didn't get it from. I'm saying he just happened to have done. Oh, he exactly did the same what thing. I did. I thought oh, maybe no, it had no, a life of its own, and it kind of made the circuit. Oh, his day, he must have recorded, you know, three decades earlier. But the thing was, oh I didn't shit, get it okay. From, I didn't get the idea from him. It's just something I did. You know, and that's the old comedy thing. You know, the same guy, the same joke can get written in 
Los Angeles and in New York at the same time, and that's always been the battle. You know? I got gotcha. you. Hey, man, it was my idea to do jokes about Star Trek. Right. You know, right. Like, please. <laughs> yeah, I recently watched uh, Gilbert Gottfried was on something. This was probably a year ago, and Nick DiPaolo, and uh, I watched him, and they told like the same joke, and I was, I was, because I know neither one of those guys are joke stealers. It was just like you said. Sometimes a premise comes up, and we we think the same, and so uh, it comes out. Yeah, because you you know you take A and B. You know, if you take hydrogen and oxygen, you're going to come up with with uh, water. No matter you know, no matter who you are, at some point there's going to be crossover. <clears throat> I've always told people you wouldn't believe. I mean, there is nothing new under the sun. I always tell people. I get very offended when people say, here's a street joke, or somebody says, <laughs> this is an old joke. There is no such thing as an old joke. A right. joke is, if you have heard it already, to you, that's an old joke. If you haven't heard it already, to you, that's a new joke. And right. that applies to every joke with every person individually. Right like then. when jokes are going around, if all of a sudden I hear a joke going around and a few people tell it to me, I would never use that. Because if I tell a joke that I heard three weeks ago from somebody, somebody will go, oh, that's an old joke. But meanwhile, I tell them a joke I heard in 1956. Right. That they haven't heard. That's, you know, it it's, it's just keeps refreshing itself. And I tell people, if you think you can come up with something about, about poop or piss or vomit <laughs> or sex or blowjobs that nobody ever thought of before, good luck. Right. You know, it's like, remember the old Robert Klein thing about the, if you give a million monkeys a million typewriters? You know that? Yeah, yeah. They'll, <laughs> well, they'll, they'll type war and peace, right? Isn't it? Right, right. To be or not to be. That is the Gnorton splat, you know? <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah, right. I know, I've always remembered Gnorton splat because I always thought it was so funny. That's you, the... know, you know what? I meant to tell you, Red Fox's favorite joke was did you hear about the Polish gangster? His career was managed by three black singers. <laughs> Which is so beyond hip. I can't stand yeah. that. That's just crazy. I've never forgotten that, you know. No, I I'm I'm embarrassed to say this, but I, I have to uh I have to take a piss right now. You can do whatever you want. You want oh you put me on hold? Go ahead. Well you can go on hold or you can just tell jokes for three minutes if you want to do that. And then I can be surprised when I listen to the uh <laughs> when I listen to the playback. All right, go ahead. All right, I'm going and then right I now. Get to take a, then I get to pee, and you can say nice things about me while I'm gone. Okay, go. I'll be right back. So a guy knocks on the neighbor's door, and his neighbor answers. He says, hey, man, since the COVID hit, I haven't seen your wife. His neighbor says, oh, she's out back in the garden. He says, well, I was just out there. I didn't see her. His neighbor says, well, you, you got to dig down a little. <laughs> a girl calls a doctor. She says, doc, I got diarrhea. Can I take a bath? He says, if you got enough. <laughs> a guy says to the librarian, I need a book on suicide. She says, fuck you. You won't bring it back. <laughs> An old guy sitting at the bar. The bartender says, how old are you? The guy says, 97. 97? What's your secret? He says, one time I blew a guy for his watch. No, I mean the secret to your longevity. Oh, I, I eat fruits and vegetables. <laughs> All right. 
So I told a few great ones. I know you did. And that'll be my surprise when I get back to the uh, editing room. I want to talk about the Stern Show because there's so much Before magic. Before you go any further, I want to do a plug because if this wine's being cut in two, I need people to know <clears throat> I do Cameo.com and I do a lot of them and they are so fun because I was made to do them. I don't know if you know what they are. Sure. <clears throat> but I know of so many jokes. So if you say, say Happy Father's Day to my uncle, he loves... Uh, poop jokes and he bets a lot at the racetrack and he's got two kids that are absolutely annoying and I could just go down the line I got like 110 five star reviews it's cameo.com slash Jackie Marlin okay Excellent. I didn't mean to cut you off but that, no plug you know. away plug away listen this is just a conversation with someone that I've been waiting to talk to for a long long time uh, during the time you were part of the Stern show it was not only the hottest radio show in the country but it was probably the most exciting, unpredictable, and dangerous entertainment available. You know, it was, you never knew what was going to happen. And when you left, my heart broke, you know, and because... Well, you know, I, I take that as such a compliment. And, you know, and they made fun of me. Because when I said, we're the Beatles of radio, everybody made fun of me. But God damn it, we were the Beatles of radio. Yeah, there was nothing like you know, it. Yeah. You know, Howard was Lennon and McCartney, but... They needed George Harrison and they needed Ringo because it's, you know, or else you got wings, you know, or else you got the concept for Bangladesh. You know, it just ain't the same. <laughs> you know, we actually broadcast for a week from the this studio at Abbey Road. I mean, the actual room where everything happened. We broadcast from there for a week. I just got the chills saying that to you. Imagine sitting there, I was like, right. I cannot believe this. You know, I wouldn't have dreamed of doing that. You know, like, wow. Yeah. Yeah. There was, it was the peak of American radio and it was your tenure there. And I remember hearing shows that to me were the apex of American uh, entertainment. When, when Sam Kinison would come on, you didn't know it was like watching a ticking time bomb. You didn't know what was going on. And what was your relationship with Sam? Tell us some Sam stories. Uh, me and Sam were old friends. I'll tell you, we were sitting there one day at 6.15 and the door burst open. And it was Sam Kennison, Jack Riley from the old Newhart show, mm. Chuck McCann, wow. and Pat McCormick. They oh. all been at the comedy store watching Sam. And after the show, they did a bunch of coke. And he said, come on, man, let's go to the Stern Show. <laughs> and they got on Sam's plane and came to New York and came in from the airport. And I'm sitting there looking at the comedic Mount Rushmore. It's like I died and went to heaven. Right. <clears throat> but this is, a, this is a little bit drawn out story, but it's so worth it. I used to produce, when I first started in comedy, I had broken off of my band. We were still playing as a band, but I was playing by myself with my guitar amp and my guitar, and I had an, a, an input on the side of my Fender amp to plug in a microphone. So I was a little one-man show, and I had a couple extension speakers. I'd play my songs and tell my jokes. <clears throat> so when we decided we were gonna do a show, me and Richie at a comedy club, I mean at a restaurant, I already had the setup. I had the amp, the speakers, the microphone. I'd play my guitar, I'd do an hour at the end, we were ready to go, <clears throat> and then, when, we, when I started working other places, a guy came up to me and said, hey, you know, I got a couple of gigs that I can't handle. I only got one set of equipment. So I started taking over some of his gigs. And I mean, I booked everybody, you know, the Seinfelds and the Risers and everybody. 
<clears throat> and another guy started doing it, this guy Jim Balazos. And he got a little bit more into it. He was from Jersey. And he got to the point where he had a van and he had a big sound system and he was doing well enough that he actually hired two guys to set up the, the sound equipment for him, okay? So, and I worked for him a lot because, you know, I used to kill people. You know, I could go into a restaurant bar in the middle of nowhere and somehow command their attention. You know, if you were a quiet guy from from Manhattan that said, hey, did this ever happen to you? People, fuck you! You know, so, you know, <laughs> I, I'd be like, fuck you back. Now here's a dick joke, you know? Right. So, <clears throat> so I worked for this guy a lot. So at some point, these guys are setting up the equipment and one guy yells the other, what the And I'm thinking, what what planet is this guy from? And all of a sudden, one of the other guys will go, ow, ow. And I'm like, what, what the fuck? What's going on? And yeah. I just thought it was funny, okay? Then at one point, I show up. We'd always meet at the Improv at 44th and 9th in Manhattan <clears throat> to go on a gig with Palazzos. And I got in the van. And uh, Palazzos says, Jackie, this is Sam. And here's this little troll wearing his little... Uh, you know, beret, beret. Yeah, raincoat. And yeah. he said, how you doing, man? I said, how you doing? He said, listen, uh, Sam's, Sam's, you know, I just brought him out from California and he's on the show tonight. I said, oh, nice to meet you. It was me and Sam and this guy, Max Dolcelli, who Sam wound up living with for six months or something like that. So we go out and I mean to the other end of Jersey, almost Pennsylvania. And this is 1979. And I'm not exaggerating when I say they literally tied up the disco ball so that people could see the stage. I mean, I, you can't make that up. Hmm. And he, and Balazzo says to me, listen, Jackie, I want you to host the show, but save a lot of your stuff because I might need you to go on after Sam because I really don't know what's going to happen. And I'm like, <laughs> oh, all right, I have no idea what he's talking about. <laughs> and if I tell you I remember this like it happened yesterday, <clears throat> I went up you know, how you doing? Did my joke. And this is so early in the game that people are only used to watching comics on television. So the concept of sitting in a bar and looking at a stage, it's one thing to see guys playing music, but to see a guy standing on stage, a guy or girl on stage, trying to be funny, that's the same age or around the same age as you, like, you know, it's basically... Who the fuck does this person think they are? Meanwhile, in the we're in the wilds of New Jersey, in the middle of nowhere, so far out, you know. And uh, so I go up and I and after I introduce Max, and Max goes up and does this thing, and I say, "All right, now here's uh, <clears throat> just out from California. This is Sam Kennison." And Sam goes up on stage, and this was this was his act for a long time, but you know he went through so many changes. But he walked up on stage, you know, with a long trench coat and his beret. <clears throat> and he walked back and forth. I never forget. I could see him right now, pacing like a tiger. <laughs> and he was whispering. He said, "He said, you folks don't know me, but you're gonna know me. You're eventually gonna know me. You're never gonna forget my face. You're gonna remember." And it, but he went on for a long time. And then he turned and he leaned over. And I'm talking about six inches from some woman's face. He goes. Because I live in hell! Ow! Ow! I married a leper whore! Ow! I live in hell! Ow! Ow! And like, it was like, holy, and he just screamed at them for a half an hour, and it was, it was, 
it was a lightning bolt. I really don't even know how to describe. It was un and I'm when I walked out when he was done, and I walked on stage. I'm sure you've seen those movie clips of the people sitting in that movie audience with the 3D glasses on, and they're almost like the Max L commercial. Remember that Max L commercial? Yeah, you're staring like, at it. They're pinned, pinned to the back of a chair, and I just was giggling, so I did a bunch of jokes and blah, blah, blah. And, but when he started with the, oh, oh, leper, I said, I put it together. What had happened was Bellazzo's had seen Sam, brought home cassettes of Sam, and those guys had played it in the car and liked it. So what they were doing when they were sit, setting up yeah. was they were spouting Sam Kinison things back and forth, which I had no idea. But all of a sudden, the whole thing made sense. It fell and, you know, together, and, yeah. And we got I got back in the van, and Sam said, you're a great entertainer, man. This is a lot of fun. And we got so drunk, stoned. And then like a couple of years later, he walks in the Stern Show, and I'm sitting there, and he goes, what the hell are you doing here, man? I said, well, what are you doing here, man? And, you know, and, and we were just really, really good friends, you know, for, always. At, at all points, always. You know, he'd, he'd, you know, he'd put Coke in my pocket or found out it was my birthday, put $100 in my pocket. He just was, he just was a good soul, you know, his own, his own worst enemy type thing, you know. Yeah. But, yeah, what a great, a great character, a monster, and he he changed the landscape for standup. Uh, I remember reading George Carlin, um, his autobiography, Last Words, and he was talking about when he saw Sam Kinison, he said, "Okay, I I got to go for it. I I got to let this anger out because uh, the bar has been raised." You know, right, right. Everything just shifted. You know, Sam went on Saturday Night Live and got edited out from the West Coast because he did Jesus stuff. And they said he was out of the business. And like two weeks later, he hosted. Right. You know what I mean? Like people said, you know what? Maybe this is the new normal or new something, you know? Yeah, this is the direction where no holds barred. You know, uh, I, I, you know, he came on the show one time when he was doing Westbury Music Fair, which is a big venue in the round here. And he already had three opening acts. He had uh, Jimmy Schubert. And Carla Bove and oh. one other guy. He had three opening acts. He said, Jackie, I want you to be on the show tonight. I'm like, well, that's crazy. He said, come on, you know, I'll pay you good, blah, blah, And I'm like, sure. So, you know, these, you know, <clears throat> all four of us opened up the show. And then, of course, he killed. And between shows, I mean, in my memory, he was doing handfuls of whatever the pills were and so much coke. He was, he was as screwed up as anybody I've ever seen. And then we go out for the second show. And by the time the four of us got done, he walked out on stage. He had a he had a bottle of wine in a in a paper bag like a like a wino, and he walked around in circles on the stage, just saying Jessica Hahn, Jessica Hahn. Oh. Someone's like, "Be funny, be funny." He says, "Can a guy do his act?" Jessica, and he was so fucked up. Eighty percent, ninety percent of the people left. Everybody uh, wanted their money back. It was so, it was. That's a heartbreaker. It, it was it was just a heartbreaker. But people remember that night, and I happened to have been on the show, and it was, you know, he he. But the first show, they, you know, could have been the best comedy album of all time. You know, yeah. he just just terribly unpredictable. But, and we just you know, we just lost Carla Bove recently. That's that was a sad day. Yeah, and he mm. was a nice guy, you know. You know, Sam knocked up Carl's wife and then died. Yeah, right. You, you, but you've always liked to uh, party and have fun. But, but the trappings <laughs> of insanity never pulled you in. You were always remained professional. You, well, in the '80s, when everybody else was doing coke, I didn't have any money. 
you know, thank God I didn't have money, you know. So I never got, you know, I, I did OP Coke, you know, I did other people's <laughs> Coke when I had it. And early on, Rodney said, no, you never drink before a show, no drinking before a show. Are you kidding? You crazy? After the show. And that stuck with me. And from 1985 on, I mean, I used, to, I used to get so loaded that I didn't even know how I, I got to the club. I remember we, you know, we get in the car, like three or four of us, with six packs and six packs. Mm-hmm. By the time we got there, we were flying. How we, you know, I, I can't believe I'm still alive. <laughs> but after like 1985, I never even had a sip of beer. I never smoked pot before a show because I would think everything was funny. And, I, and you know, as big a pothead as I was, I would never mix that with comedy but I would never have a, a drink before a show now during the course of the show it was really funny I used to drink I used to drink uh, water out of a Budweiser bottle you know and ch- ch- toast the people I was like leading them into the sea at the end of the show I would play Stump the Joke Man and I'd always tell the waitresses bring me a light beer so people thought I was downshifting from Budweiser to light beer but meanwhile, I was up upshifting from water <laughs> to light beer. And believe me, even if you don't drink during your show, there's still plenty of time to get really drunk and really screw up. The Stern Show saved my life. You know, having to be in that seat for 15 years at 6 o'clock in the morning, mm-hmm. you know, that that if, if there ever was a governor on your life, you know what I mean? I, there were times I got really drunk and I was a little bit late or something, but you could count those on your, on one hand, you know, right. at the times I was late are still classic Stern shows that, you know, because I'd be in some rat hole hotel where they wouldn't give me a wake up call. Jackie, where are you? Who's this? This is Gary. We're on the air. Oh, man. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. But it was gold, the golden age of the Stern show. That's for sure. And uh, yeah, I was, I mean, I always liked Artie Lang, but I knew it wasn't the same situation having Artie there. Artie was more like a sidekick guy for me. You were the the mechanism that kept that insanity that that those one liners and stuff going. And uh, you yeah. know, it was so it was so interesting the way it happened because when I got on, I went. In, he called me up to come in on the come on the air. He got my albums. I sent him, and a couple of months later, he said, "You want to come hang out on the air? Uh, we're doing a talent contest over the telephone. And you know every joke. You'd be fun." I said, "All right." So I went and sat with Howard and Robin and Fred, and <clears throat> we laughed for four hours. And he said, you know what? You're a lot of fun. Why don't you come back next week? So I came back once a week for three years for free, just for the plugs. And over the course of time, I would give him an idea or a line. But it was so, Mike, you couldn't believe how gradual, how organic it was. I wasn't I, I wasn't writing. He kind of, he wasn't all in for it. But when he'd say something, it was really funny. He knew it was funny. It was, then it'd be, he'd be more open to the next one. Mm-hmm. So when we got to the point where he got fired and then rehired at K-Rock, um, we were still on in the afternoon, but when we got to K-Rock, there was actually a place for me to sit where I could write within throwing distance of, of where he was, which was, <clears throat> it, it had to be by design. It couldn't have been there before I was there. And when he called me up and said, we're going to mornings, I want you twice a day, I mean twice a week to do your thing with the notes. I'm like, cool. And we went from, I went from two to three to four to five days a week so rapidly because, you know, not to blow my own horn, but he was funnier the days I was there. <clears throat> and Fred would start handing me little pieces of paper. 
and I'd take it and I'd rewrite it on the big, you know, on a piece of paper, and then hand, and and I finally brought Fred a stack of paper and a, <coughs> excuse me, and a sharpie. I said, Fred, listen, write your idea big and easy to read because you're giving me an idea. By the time you give it to me, I rewrite it and get to Howard. We're going to lose the moment. So Fred started coming up with stuff here and there. So the beauty of it was not only did Howard have three senses of humor, they were three completely distinct. Like Fred was from outer space. And I was a normal guy doing just stupid punchlines. And Howard was so broadly funny that nobody had any idea what was coming out of his mm -hmm. mouth. And it just made it so interesting. And it, and for so long, nobody had any idea that right. he was getting past notes. It was so seamless. And when people discovered that, it was – there's still people that have no idea. It's so – you know – I love telling the stories of what happened. You know, like, I don't know if you read the book, but Dom DeLuise, you know, if somebody came in that was famous, mm -hmm. they never had to wait. Gary would bring him right in. And one day Dom DeLuise was there and Gary brought him right in and it wasn't long before we were going to commercial. So Dom's sitting there and I'm writing notes in him to Howard. Writing notes in him, all right, we'll be right back. We go to commercial and he turns to me and goes, I've never seen anything like this. You're, you're writing ideas in real time for him. He said, this is spectacular what you guys are doing. And I said, wow, Dom, you know, like, you know, I got the chills, you know, like, yeah. you know, you're a big deal. That's great that, you know, he picked up on what was, I was literally sitting almost shoulder to shoulder with him and physically putting pieces of paper on the left side of a loose leaf for Howard to read. So Dom Peloise leaves and the next guest is Bruce Jenner. And he's sitting next to me, and the whole time he's sitting there, I am whipping off insults, and Howard is tearing him a new asshole. <laughs> and then we go to commercial, and Bruce Jenner turns to me and says, what is it you keep writing? And I said, well, I got to keep telling Howard what time it is. And he said, that's what I thought. He <laughs> <laughs> didn't get that you were the one writing the, the insults. The was... AB of the two situations back to back. I said, that is the funniest goddamn thing. Now, now she's going to be governor. So you. Yeah. 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 yeah, I was telling him what time not, it is. Not the sharpest, not the sharpest <laughs> knife in the ladies' room. <laughs> <laughs> it's a crazy time. You got to keep laughing. You know, life is. Uh, uh, you know, and that's the beauty of it. Guys like you, Gilbert Gottfried, and you know the the next generation, the Bill Burrs, this cancel culture. I mean, come on, what? I, who? They won't even come near you because there's no point. You know, now I tell people, you know, listen, offensive or not, I've been doing the same thing for 42 years. If, if somebody sees me on stage and thinks I got anything in mind except trying to make people laugh, they're out of their mind. Right. There's nothing mean or insulting. You know, I grew up with every kind of person. I've always been friends with every kind of person. And, you know. Yeah. God, I went to, I went to Radio City Music Hall as guests of the elves because the 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 the, uh, the midgets, like the little people, whatever. <laughs> used to come on the Stern show and we used to take him to scores to the strip clubs. Uh. <laughs> so they had me, Marty, Marty, uh, we used to call him Marty the midget, but Marty, I was guest of him and the other guys. So I took my sister and her kids and my sister-in-law and her kids, but I never told them that we were guests of the midgets. So, you know, before the show, I knock on the stage door <laughs> and, and Marty answers and he's literally the same height as my six-year-old nephew. 
And it was just, and I couldn't, I just did not have the balls to say, let me take a picture. You know, because, they, oh, but it was just so great. And they, and they were terrific guys and they loved me, you know. I may say. Marty, wound up, Marty was the lead. I don't know if you ever saw those, what, what was the, what was the pirate series with Johnny Depp? Oh, the Pir- uh, Pirates of the Caribbean. Pirates of the Caribbean. Marty was the little person that was like he, the star of three of those movies. You know, he's a great character. Yeah, from, he was from. He was actually from Detroit, believe it or not. From how you were describing that night, I'm going to uh, ask if I can use "Guest of the Elves" as the name of my new band. I think that I think that is so <laughs> so perfect. You know, uh, that that made the night for everybody. My sister and the kids were like, "Uncle Jackie, you never, you know." I mean, we literally were standing on the stage at Radio City Musical, right. looking out at the empty place, and you know, who gets to do that? You know, and then. Yeah. 20 or 30 years later, I was on the stage, you know, singing gospel songs with Willie Nelson and his family. You know, at the end of the show, he does like five or six gospel songs and wow. all his friends got to come up. So I'm standing there with his daughter, Amy, and his and his ex-wife, Connie, who are, have become such good friends. You know, me and Willie Nelson exchanged dirty jokes like on an almost weekly basis on email, you know. That's great. He, just, you know, I, I, I got the strangest strangest group of, of friends you know very eclectic yeah well yeah, because nobody it, from this era nobody from this era yeah know? but you know there, there's your personality comes through there was no there was never a, a facade or a character that you played it was always this guy's showing up for a good time and you always bring it and it's a pleasure to talk to you i wanted to talk to you a little bit about when you were coming up you hung out a lot with eddie murphy not a real lot it's so funny i met him when he was 16 or 17 he was one of the guys at Richard M. Dixon's White House Inn, which is the place that wouldn't pay us, so we started comedy clubs. But I swear to God, back then, he would say, I'm going to be bigger than the Beatles. And we're like, shut up, Eddie, you know. Mm-hmm. And then he became bigger than the Beatles. But there were great <laughs> right. stories, great stories. In my, I think they're in my book. About they're in your book, yeah. Jackie the, the Joke you know, Man. Driving, you yeah. know, Clint Smith, the other guy that was in that car with Eddie, Clint Smith, who was uh, his childhood friend that was in the he was one of the guys in the barbershop in those Coming to America movies. And uh, I just spoke to Clint like a month or two ago because he's back here with his mother. And he says, yeah, me and Eddie still laugh about those days. That You know, they were they really were great, great fun. Um, mm-hmm. But I very rarely... One time I saw him at the China Club in like 1990 after we had just started the Howard Stern Channel 9 shows, which were really off the beaten... They were just oh, off yeah. the charts. And Eddie came up to me and said, Jack, those Howard Stern Channel 9 shows, that is the funniest shit on TV. And no, I'm not doing the show. (laughs) (laughs) He's not coming on. That's funny. We used to do shows, and it was always the same gang of us. You know, Eddie was in the car sometimes, but we would do shows with two, three, four of us. But it was pretty quick that he got big. Um, But at the end of each show... I always went on last because I was the loudest and I would always end the show with one of my songs. And it was the same two, three, four songs that I would always play and you you just can't help but hear them. I don't know about you, but you you hear a song from 1965 and go, oh, remember this? And like, wait a minute. I hated that song. Right. But you know, but it's a familiarity. And at one point we were doing a show and I finished with the, I think I finished with my my song, Butcher's Song. And Mm -hmm. I came off and Eddie came up to me and I don't know if he'd ever remember this, but he came and he said, Jack, you know, I got like 
five favorite songs, and three of them are yours. Like, wow, <laughs> Isn't that that's cool? Flattering. Yeah. You know, and but now I'm like, you know, well, put three seconds of them in one movie so I can retire. You know. Right. So, right. But I mean, totally unsolicited. It wasn't like, hey, Eddie, do you like my songs? Like, he just came up and volunteered that, which uh, which I thought was, you know, really. So meanwhile, I've sent four thousand. FedExes and messages to his agents and managers. <laughs> I'll tell you one thing that's so politically incorrect. Uh, I used to book this place called the Brokerage before I before I got the gig at Governors. The Governors didn't exist yet. Brokerage was a a music place, and they started doing comedy on Friday and Saturday nights, and they had me booking it. <clears throat> and Eddie had just just gotten gotten fired, you know, all fired. You know, he was on his way. And his manager was a dear friend of mine who passed away recently. He's the guy I dragged Rodney Dangerfield to his club in in Florida. So I was I was gold to him for forty years. <clears throat> but uh, his name is Richie Tinkin, and he's Eddie's manager. And we're, brokerage, I had somebody drop out, and the brokerage is in Belmore, and Eddie lived down the street in Roosevelt. And I call up Richie. I said, Richie, I really need another act for my show tonight at the brokerage. And he goes, Jack, Eddie, last week he worked at CW Post College and he made $10,000. And I said, well, this doesn't pay that much. You know? Right. And he goes, let me find out. And he says, listen, Eddie says he'll do the show. So Eddie comes and does the show at the brokerage, which is this little hole, you know, 100 people, 150 people. And, you know, and he, he, he really wasn't all that funny yet. He really wasn't. And people like, you know, you ain't so hot, blah, 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 you know. Whatever happened, but we get done with the shows, and this is the gospel truth. <clears throat> he comes up to me and says, Jack, what am I getting paid for tonight? I said, $100. He said, $100? Jack, that's slave labor. And I said, lest you forget. <laughs> <laughs> and he said, Jack, you're crazy. <laughs> Jack, you're crazy. But he loved me, you know, because I, you know, I would say anything, you know. Yeah. But what a great line. What a great line. <laughs> Just classic. Crazy Just stuff. Classic. So, what was your your relationship with with Dangerfield? Was great. Rodney, I wound up being a comedian because a club owner was a piece of crap. And I wound up writing for Rodney because my best comedian friend told me a lie, which is just so fun. My band used to play at a place on Long Island called My Father's Place, which was a big deal. You know, the Stones right. played there once and Bruce Springsteen. Everybody came through there on their way up. And we're a local band, and once in a while we get to play at My Father's Place. So all our friends would come out, and, you know, we could fill the place one time every six months, you know. So we show up in the afternoon to do sound check. And there's only, there's me and my, my guy that taught me guitar. There's two guitars, and we get a bass player to play along with us, you know, without even any rehearsal. It's hard to describe. But we show up for sound check, and this goddamn cheap piece of crap, Epi, that the whole world knows, you know, everybody worked this club. I remember I met Robert Klein. I'm like, what am I going to say to Robert Klein? And then went up and I said, hey, Robert, Epi says hello. And he goes, how much does he owe you? And we're right. best friends from then on, right? right so right. Epi, Epi booked the club in the afternoon to WABC-TV to do gong show auditions. So we couldn't do our sound check. So I'm sitting there and I'm watching the gong show auditions, you know, like a guy balancing water, you know, all this crap. And these two guys get up that are auditioning for the gong show that are comedians. And I looked at them and I said, 
I'm as funny as these guys. And I went up to this guy, <clears throat> Richie Minervini, the guy who became my friend. I said, Jesus, man, how'd you get to be a comedian? And he said, easy. I had cards printed up. <laughs> I swear to God, <laughs> he hands me his card, which I have scanned on my computer. And his manager was Patty Smythe's mother. Wow. He said, listen. And then he stayed to watch me, watch my band. He said, wow, you're really funny. Why don't you come to Richard M. Dixon's to the variety show and do your stuff? And I said, okay. So we start going to Richard M. Dixon's, and it's brand new. Dixon's not paying us. There's no place to do anything. So I had my own show at this place is called the Neptune Pub, where I played the guitar and told jokes. And I said, why don't you guys show up anytime? I'll put you on stage. So Eddie Murphy came, Bob Nelson came, Rob Bar because there was no place to go on stage right. on Long Island. So they get to do five or 10 minutes of my thing, which was obviously <clears throat> not an ideal comedy. You know, everybody's drunk, you know, mm -hmm. but, uh, but it was absolutely classic. And then uh, Richie, my grandmother died and I'm living at my grandmother's house. And Richie used to come and, and crash there once in a while with me and my girlfriend. And one night he walked in and he said, oh man, and, in those days, everybody exaggerated because we're just scraping and clawing mm. and trying to build ourselves up. It's not so much lying as trying to, you know, trying to give yourself some steam. Right. He said, oh, man, I went to Dangerfields tonight, and I, I did so great, and Rodney said I'm great. He's going to use me on television when he gets a show, and I couldn't believe how jealous I was. I mean, I was I was dying, and I sat down at my, at my typewriter, and put in, you know, carbon copy and and typed up every joke that I knew that I thought I could make into Rodney speak. You know what I mean? So it sounded like Rodney, the way Rodney would mm -hmm. deliver it. And I typed up six pages of jokes. Meanwhile, a couple of weeks before, a friend of mine called me from Peru. He was selling Coke, doing Coke, and he said, Chief, I got a joke for you. You better wake up. You better not be drunk. You got to remember this. And he tells me this joke, which was really great. So that became a joke that I liked. So that was one of the jokes included in these six pages I typed out. And I folded them up and put them in an envelope and wrote Rodney Dangerfield. And the next time Richie walked into my house, I said, Rod uh, Rodney. I said, Richie, you got to do me a favor. Give these jokes to Rodney. And he gets all sheepish. He goes, oh, man. He said, I didn't meet Rodney. He said, he said, I didn't. Even, I didn't even get on stage that night. Oh wow! I said, you, you motherfucker! I said, man, I just typed. He said, listen, I was there though. I, these always sound like I'm making up. He took the matchbook out of his pocket. Dangerfields, one 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 eight First Avenue, whatever it is. I already had the envelope with Rodney Dangerfield on it. I just wrote in the address underneath it, and put on a stamp and put it. In the, I, what did I have to lose? Right. right? Now, my grandmother's dead. Everybody she knew was dead. Nobody had the phone number of this place where I'm living. <clears throat> and the phone rings. A couple of days later, I'm having lunch with my girlfriend. The phone rings. I answer, hello? <laughs> I said, who is this? He said, it's Rodney. I said, Rodney who? He said, oh, I knew you were fucking funny. I could tell you were funny. And wow. Goes, see, my girlfriend goes, who is it? I said, it's Rodney Dangerfield. She says, come on, who, who is it, Richie? I said, it's fucking Rodney. He's like, yeah, some funny shit here, you know, there's some really funny stuff here. The joke that he really liked was the Tennessee two-bagger, which wound up being, <clears throat> he told it as the two-bagger, 
which was an old Southern. Every joke is it's the right joke in the right place. Right. And the joke was she was so ugly. She was known as a two bagger. That's a girl who's so ugly. You not only got to put a bag over her head, you got to put a bag over your own head in case the bag over her head rips. There and you he go. just fucking loved it. He said, there's like four jokes, five jokes here. You listen, why don't you come to Westbury Music Fair? You know, I'll give you a check. You know, I like these jokes. You know, I will meet and see what happens. And I said, wow. So me and my girlfriend go to Westbury Music Fair. And we walk in. I got a pony. This 1978. I got a ponytail down the middle of my back. Torn blue blue jeans. A girlfriend who's ten years younger than me. We walk and says, "Look at what a fuck! Look at your ripped. <clears throat> what's with the hair? Hey, she's really pretty. You want a piece of fruit? She's beautiful. Whoa! What's with the fucking? You're a fucking mess. Look at this. Oh, well, she's really good looking. You want to be? And he's like, some jokes here. Some really funny shit. You know, I really like that. But so he wrote me a check for two hundred bucks for the four jokes. And he, you know, and then when he did the two bagger on Carson, till the day he died, he swore the two bagger was his best joke. And it was a whole band. And then for years, I just sent him more jokes and more jokes. He very rarely bought any, but he didn't keep track either. And then once in a while, he'd do a joke on Tonight Show that he hadn't bought. <clears throat> but who cared? And it wasn't that he was trying to be subversive. He was so wrecked all the time that he's not keeping track, you know. And then when he came on the Stern Show and said that I owed him money, there was a whole thing, you know. I explained that whole thing away. But mm. to this day, I still get emails from people, pay Rodney the money you owe, which was such horseshit. You know, people people couldn't make, they couldn't understand the commerce of, I buy a joke from you and I give you $50. You know, just like you're buying a car or you're buying a hat, you know, but people, you know, and, the, and he sealed my fate when he said, I don't know anything about buying jokes, which of course, you know, and I'm not going to throw an icon under the bus. No, and say, no. well, Rodney, you were so full of cocaine and so drunk and so stoned all the time. Of course you don't know. So I, I didn't care. Right. But it was just, the whole thing came about because Richie had told me a lie. And I was always up his ass about taking me away. And one day he called and says, listen, I'm going to Vegas. You want to go to Vegas? Come on. You know, I'll, I'll take you to Vegas. You know what? You want to come to Lauderdale too? I'm taking my daughter to Lauderdale for a week vacation. And then we'll go to Vegas. So I spent two weeks with him. Wow. And I'm telling you, at the time, the comic strip in Fort Lauderdale was a sister of the comic strip in New York, and it just opened. And everybody wanted to work there. So we're going to Fort Lauderdale at Easter break time in 1980. So everybody wants to work there. So the three or four guys working at the comic strip stay over because they want to get as much time as they can in Lauderdale, and the other guys come early. So Rodney and me are staying at the Bahiamar, and I know that there's a new comedy club. <clears throat> and I said, there's a new comedy club just opened up. You want to go there? I don't know. First, you know, I promised Louis Nye I'd come to his... Do you, know, you know who Louis Nye Louis is? Louis Nye, yeah. Great From comic. Steve Allen show? Great yeah, comic. Yeah, I host yeah. Steve Arena, right? right? <clears throat> so he said, you're doing one... So we go to Louis Nye's one-man show. Me, Rodney, his daughter, his daughter's friend, and his son. And we see him, and he says, I'll ask Louie. He says, hey, Louie, there's a comedy club. I just thought, you want to go to a comedy club? He's like, of course, of course. <laughs> so we're packed into a car, and we were on A1A, which at the time was a simple two-lane road going either way along the beach. So packed with people, you could hardly move. <clears throat> if they had looked in and seen him, even though he wasn't that recognizable yet, he was already doing the Miller, Miller Light commercials, which really put him on the map, but nobody saw us. We finally found the club, and I'm telling you, Dennis Wolfberg, oh, Paul sure. Reiser, Larry Miller, 
Glenn Hirsch, Peter Bales, and Bob Nelson are all there. And I come walking into the comic strip for the first time. Hey, Jackie, hey, what are you doing here? And behind me is Rodney Dangerfield. And their eyes popped out. But then the piece de resistance, when Louis and I walked in, their heads exploded. Right. And Paul, Paul I'll never forget, Paul Reiser came up to me and said, you arrange this? <laughs> <laughs> so we watched the show, and they love him. And of course, they comp him. And now Rodney knows where the comic strip is. So anytime he's ever in Fort Lauderdale, of course, he's going to find his way to the comic strip and get drunk and try his new jokes out in the crowd, which was always a plus for the club, a plus for anybody. It was an all-win situation. It was all due to me. So Richie Tinkin always loved me. Yeah. You know, and uh, and that was my my history. And then we went to Las Vegas, and that, those are the stories that are in the book about all the shit that happened. Yeah. You know, the, the book I, is. You know, I just I keep telling people all these years later, I keep thinking of things that happened that I don't know if I ever wrote them down. And this hit me the other, just the other day. Me and Rodney, this one was in the book. We we're walking along the beach in Fort Lauderdale, and it's wall to wall girls in bikinis, college girls. And, you know, our heads are exploding. And he literally turned to me and said, don't you wish you could just fuck anybody you want? <laughs> <laughs> I said, do you, do you really think you have to say that out loud? But meanwhile, we're on the beach. I swear to God, an old lady recognized him. And she comes up to him. And honest to God, she says, can you tell me where there's entertainment? He said, don't fucking look at me, lady. Go buy a paper. What the fuck's wrong with that? It was just, it was so priceless. You know, not can I have your autograph. Oh, I'm a big fan. Can you tell me where there's entertainment? Oh, my God. Oh, it's just fucking priceless. And the other thing you used to do, have people come up and say, can I take a picture? And he'd pose with somebody for a picture. And every time they're about to take a picture, he'd turn to me and say, I'm going to be in a lot of basements. <laughs> Frame picture, yeah. The, they yeah. blow up the picture and put it in the basement. Put it in the you basement, know? right. I met Rodney. There's Rodney. You must have seen a lot of people that came through with promise, and then they end up, you know, maybe not getting as far as they should have. and, and that or, or, or they get as far as they should have, and then they're not. Right. You know, I remember uh, I'm on the show, so I, I'm – I'm not really hamstrung because I'm making money and every couple of years I'm making more money and more money and more money and more money. But it was a long, I was a long struggle to get paid decently. Right. I remember I'd get so jealous because all of a sudden Richard Jenny had his own sitcom, you know, but then he did. And then old John Mendoza had his own sitcom and then he didn't. So I'm watching them get their own sitcom, but then a year or two later, they're back in the clubs, you know, things come and go and come and go and same with artists. But I tell you, there's nothing like all of a sudden I'm sitting with people like Leslie West became a friend and and Roger Daltrey loved my stuff and Joe Walsh. You know, these are the icons that, you know, you're playing their music and and they were your heroes in college. Right. And now they're like, not my friend friends. Like, you know, I don't know if I wrote this in the book, but there was a scam I used to pull. That wasn't really a scam. Howard... (laughs) It's just it, he has no either has no social graces or she, he just doesn't give a crap, which is kind of the same thing. <clears throat> but people would come in. There was no such thing as hi, you know. I'm Howard. That's Jackie. This is Fred. That's Robin. You know, no social graces. It was like we didn't exist. And these people would come on the show, and, we, and me and Fred would just kind of sit there. 
And what I used to do is I'd tell the interns, listen, get the guys in, the guy, get their information, either the name of their record company or the name of their manager, get some information. I can't, this happened with at least five people, but the ones that come to mind are, are Diamond Dave, uh, Diamond David Lee Roth, right. Clarence Clemens, Roger Daltrey, Peter Noon. They come on the show. I never get introduced to them. I don't know them from Adam. But I get the name of their record company, whatever, and I send all my comedy CDs and all the stuff. And every musician in the world loves that crap. Right. And the next time they'd come on the show, they they would forget that they didn't know me. Because from listening to my records, they assumed they knew me. So they'd right. come on and say, hi, Howard. Hi, Jackie. And I would always smile. Like Clarence Clemens walks in and says, hey, Howard. Hey, Jackie. How you doing? <laughs> hi, Clarence. Right. And like how, you know, I remember one time I went to the bathroom and I came back from the bathroom and Howard's lying back, sitting back in his chair. He goes, yeah, Clarence is telling me how after hours they sit around in Mill Valley listening to your records for hours. And I'm like, oh, that's very, and I could tell it just ate him up a little bit. The last thing he wants to hear during commercial is, you know, who's really funny, Howard, that guy, Jackie, you know? Yeah. (laughs) Well, you know, and and, and again, I'm... I want to ask this because I was talking to Tom Leopold recently who you wrote for so many great people and he was talking about Steve Allen with me. And when, when you see Steve Allen and you see certain uh, hosts or, you know, lead players in situations, they thrived on the fact of making other people look good. And they weren't jealous if someone else got the laugh because they knew that their name was stamped on it. And that was kind of a, a it was of, the Ed Sullivan show. If somebody juggled and got big applause, that's under Ed Sullivan's umbrella. That's right. how I looked at it, too. Yeah. Now, was that the case at the Stern show? Absolutely not. No. Exactly. You know, You know. and I'm sure people are going to call him. I, he doesn't even know who I am anymore. But, the, you know, the stuff that happened along the way, a lot of it I would never even write about because it would sound like you're nitpicking. Yeah. But it's like if somebody walked down the street and walked past you and somebody tripped them, it's not a big deal. But if they trip everybody that goes by, eventually, like, you know, come on. So there was a there was a syndicated show just after we started at K-Rock in the mornings. Toyota wanted a syndicated show. And they were going to do it on Saturdays. And I was not part of the show because supposedly it wasn't in the budget. But the truth of it was Toyota wanted to have an audience. And they wanted 30 or 40 people live watching the show and there's no way Howard was going to have people seeing me passing him notes so mm-hmm. there conveniently wasn't room in the budget so one of the guests they'd always get big stars because I guess they paid him for whatever <clears throat> one of the stars was Elton John and Fred wrote a song for Elton John and Elton John I guess sat at the piano and put Fred's lyrics in front of him and just made up a song as he went along singing Fred's lyrics which became a staple on the Stern Show. It was, I'm sure you, there is a man mm-hmm. with a very small penis. It's it just a classic. <laughs> and every morning, Fred would play, he, he's just a, just a genius, such an unheralded genius. He would play clips from shows that had some kind of theme, and at the end, before we went on the air, he'd either play an old bit or an old song parody or something, and occasionally it would be that Elton John song. So Fred starts the show, and, and the last thing before we come on air is the Elton John song. Mm-hmm. And we come on the air, and I see Howard, like, 
leaned down and I'm like, hmm. And blah, blah, blah. And we do this. And at the first break, I call up Nancy and I said, will you listen to the show? She says, yeah, I was listening from the beginning. But she did a lot because she taped a lot of the shows in the beginning. Right. And I said, uh, did you hear what I said? She said, what do you mean? What happened was when we came on the air, I said, Howard, I think that might be the, the best thing Fred ever wrote. And Howard just uh. kind of looked at me and he hit the fucking delay. Because you said he wrote it. He didn't say he wrote it. But he didn't say he didn't. Right, but you you mentioned that it was it wasn't written. By I him. said that's the funniest thing Fred ever wrote, and I'm sure. But once again, it's under his umbrella. That's yeah. why I'm saying that. You yeah. know, he he created the space for it to happen. But he he you know, if it comes out of your column, it's just like business. If you take that dollar, it's no longer my dollar. Right. You know, it's a zero sum gain. So, I, I and I just let you know that is, you know. That really sucks, you know. And then that that there was a that was one of the funniest things in the documentary because um, I wasn't part of that show, but they had a big party at Elaine's in New York City to celebrate the show. And we, of course, you know, were on the air that morning, so I was invited to this party, even though I wasn't going to be part of the Toyota show. <clears throat> and we were so new to K Rock mornings that Howard's sister came up to me and uh, said, Jackie. You know, I never got to listen to the show because you guys were on afternoons, but now you're on in the mornings, and I, I can hear the show. And I said to my brother, Howie, when did you get so witty? And he said, it's not me, it's Jackie. Oh, and wow. you are Jackie. It's so nice to meet you. <laughs> yeah, right. I said, yeah. You know, because that is the typical from the mouths of babes. Right. She wasn't trying to be nice or crappy. She was just complimenting me, you know, inadvertently pulling back, you know, pay no pension to the man behind the curtain, you know, mm -hmm. which was classic. Just, 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 just classic. Yeah. I remember whenever you guys would start in a new market, you would, you know, hold funerals for the top <clears throat> guys like Mark and Brian in LA, uh, man cow in Chicago, you went after and, uh, John DeBella in Philly. And I used to think, you know, it was a great marketing tool, but I used to think, God, man, it's so brutal. The shit that the people were saying back and forth. And we used to make fun of Man Cow on my show and we would go after him as much as we could. And we actually got a couple of blurbs when I was at uh, the cat radio station and a couple of uh, write-ups in trade papers. And I get home one day and it's so funny because I'm living in this section eight apartment with my partner, Steve, and we're, we're listening to tapes of our show and, and we get a phone call from Gary Delabate and he says, uh, Hey, we just want to tell you, we're really proud of what you're doing. <laughs> we're really happy that you're doing this. And it was just very bizarre to get that. And it's funny how you say people get phone numbers, somehow they got it, you know? Yeah, you know, and I'll tell you, you know how sometimes a show would come on TV, maybe not anymore, there would be a disclaimer. Some of the uh, things that go on in this show don't necessarily represent the views of the management. The views of the management, you know? yeah. And he'd start going off about the man cow's dead father, and I want to dig up his father's skull yeah. and have sex with his skull, and I wanted to go, I didn't write that. I don't play like that. You know, like, <laughs> That's not my thing, right. It's not right. my thing. You, well, the greatest thing, when you when you write these horrible things, the greatest thing was uh, seeing stuff in print. And when we go on a new market, he would always do a press conference, and I would always write his speech. And it was, you know, because anything went. You know, right. the more pompous and outlandish, the better it was. 
And, of course, the local paper, wherever it was, whether it was Toronto or Chicago, they would start out with a funny quote. And it was always something I wrote. And it was just always fun to see it in print. And then when we got fined by the FCC, they'd list what we were being fined for. I'd see my jokes. Like we wrote, I wrote this horrible song parody about Susan Berserkowitz, who, used to, who was a tra- air traffic control, whatever it was, traffic girl. Who, uh, who made a bet with Howard about something, and she lost the bet, so she had to sing whatever song we wrote. And I wrote a parody to "I Gotta Be Me," and it was "I Love Sodomy." <laughs> and, and seeing those, seeing those words written out on FCC U.S. government, you know, <laughs> I I get down on my knees and say, "Please, you know, I love sodomy." Oh, just, Great stuff. Know, there was a few. There was a few that he stayed away from, like Charles Laquadera in Boston, where Billy West got his start. And Charles and I have been friends for a while. And uh, and you guys, Bob Rivers in Seattle, kind of. You, you didn't get into too much with him. I don't know the Seattle guy, but I think there's a real good chance that Mel. I don't know it, but Mel might have said, "Hands off, Charles," because uh, I wasn't even really aware of Charles till Billy got to town, and I got to know Billy, and then heard about Charles because. Charles was the reason we didn't get on in Boston for so long because they didn't they didn't didn't want to supplant him they didn't want to move him yeah you know I think we wound up on an, in the afternoon somewhere I think they bought another station to put him on yeah did, did you know Mark Parento oh, another classic BCN guy yeah if people are radio geeks they need to look at the uh, history of WBCN in Boston just wow great stuff yeah Parento Parento's the guy that first put me on XM. Oh, is that right? Oh, yeah, he was a different, you know, he was a real character. Yeah. I mean, there are there are characters, but all the characters sit around and look at each other and go, Mark Parento was a character. <laughs> <clears throat> How much do you know about him? His father won the silver medal in one of the swimming events in the 1952 Olympics hmm. and invented the Speedo bathing suit. Is Which, that I right? Don't know how you, I don't know how you invent or copy wrote or... or you know, marketed the Speedo bathing suit, and they were, and he grew up with the Kennedys. So Parento thought he was a Kennedy. You know, he just, yeah. he was so pompous, but so fun and so odd and so gay. Yeah, he was over the top. Yeah, I have tapes of him around here somewhere. I have tapes of BCN from the early '80s and late '70s. That is just that was freeform radio. That was magic. You know, that's when the medium yeah, was yeah, magic. Yeah, it was really. Uh, it was really when FM got unleashed and oh god it, it, it was the wild west it really was you know what you know and opie and anthony came up underneath howard stern's you know uh influence and i know he didn't he, he didn't like them and they didn't like him but um whenever you and anthony cumey are together I mean, i'm sitting there saying to myself these are two of the funniest men that have ever walked the earth the same i, with- I love i love sitting with him and of course we're 180 degrees <clears throat> when it comes to Trump and and being liberal and everything, but I I love them from all time. What's so funny when when Howard started at WNBC, one of the first things he started doing was taking shots at Don Imus in the morning, and after X amount of time, Imus went to management and said, "Listen, I don't want that son of a bitch talking about me, <laughs> dead mouthing me," and so management read the riot act to Howard and said, "You can't talk about Imus, you can't say anything," and he was like, "That's such crap, man. What kind of you know?" What kind of shit is that? I can't talk about him. What a low life. And then 20 years later, Opie and Anthony come to 
K-Rock. He's like, I don't want them talking about me. You know? It was right. like Animal House, a complete, you know. Because yeah. if you're the guy on top, it's so easy for everybody else to throw rocks at you. Right. But that's the game. You know, that's, that's the, the game. You know? That's so the game. Works. Yeah, I always I always loved them because they uh, they weren't afraid. They were they had nothing to lose. Why, why not? Let's go after them. But yeah, that's and- funny. I I just I just texted Opie like two hours ago saying, "Hey, I got it." Finally got a gig coming up. I don't come back on your show, you know. Yeah, yeah, you're gonna get back out there now. Uh, it's it's opening up, so that's good. Will we see you uh, swing through the Midwest, perhaps? Uh, I don't know. I don't go very far. Yeah. <clears throat> you know, I'm you know I'm I'm no spring chicken, but you know what? If I get a gig, there was a gig. I w- I would never go out and do a week here or we. You know, I don't right, do right. clubs. I don't do two shows in a night. But if I got any kind of a decent gig at all, I would fly. You know, to show, like I'm going to Boston to do three shows with Lenny Clark, who's just an old dear friend, and we have so much fun. You know, but we, there's no heavy lifting because we got three headliners on the show, and we just yeah. laugh and have a great time. You know, but uh, I do, I do whatever comes along. Well, people can it's go fun. to uh, Jokeland, your website. They can uh, get yeah, a cameo. All the gigs are on the front page of Jokeland.com. Perfect, and, perfect uh, opportunity to get a cameo for Father's Day. Get them while you can, and also uh, for birthdays or whatever. You know, it's people love them, and it's it's just perfect. And I don't, you know, I only charge fifty bucks. You know, there's people that charge. Uh, I heard Trump Jr. is charging like a thousand bucks or something. I'm like, yeah, yeah, he, I'm sure he's funny, you know. <laughs> but also, you know, nine two two wine I got, and I tweet a joke every day at four twenty. Yes, that's you know, and you know, just the old same old stupid jokes. But you know what? All of a sudden, you go there, and there's a joke, whether you like it or hate it. There it is, you know. There's a beauty in that simplicity, man. You, uh, you you tell jokes. That's what you do, and you bring laughter to the world, and boy, we need it now more than ever. Before we go, I want to definitely uh, say thank you because the documentary is beautiful, and I can't wait for it to come out and people to see the history. You realize that it got finished just as the pandemic hit. You yeah, of course, yeah. Like the day they said, hey, and guess what, Jackie's, what's that? Oh, we have a pandemic. Yeah, <laughs> here's your documentary. It's on DVD, yeah. Well, well it, with any luck, I'll get to come show it in Chicago and we can all get together and have a few laughs. That's, you know you it. Know. I am getting out to New York as soon as I can. I, I love to visit New York. I'm from the Midwest. I grew up in Chicago. I live on a farm now. So it's like when I'm in New York, I'm good for about four days before I, I got to take a I got to take a break. It's so high intensity. But yeah, uh, no, yeah, yeah, I'm I last uh, three days in L.A., two days in Vegas. You know, it's so much fun, and then it's not. Yeah, then I got I to gotta get back. Yeah. So, uh, and people can get... One, one thing I meant to ask you. One, yeah. Somebody who uh, actually wound up being a fan of mine by... It was the weirdest thing. I, we were playing out in the, in the wilds of, of uh, the mountains in between Santa Fe and Albuquerque. It was an old wooden bar. Me and my partner drove our 55 Cadillac hearse out there and performed at this country bar. We knew no country music, but we knew the owners from New York. Such a great time. We ran into this guy who started playing bass with us. And one day he took, picked up the guitar and he sang this song. And I said, holy Christ, you wrote that? He said, no, I didn't write that. He said, uh, it's a Steve Goodman song. And I said, who's that? He said, well, oh, tell yeah. he didn't even write the song, but uh, he's just incredible. So I got home and there's no internet. There's no nothing. So I look up the Steve Goodman guy and get a copy of his album. And instantly became the biggest fan of this guy and turned everybody I know on to him. And then, he, of all things, he came to work at that place, my father's place, I was telling you about. Right, right. The, you know? 
So I go and I get there two hours early to make sure I get a seat. And meanwhile, there's 20 people in the crowd because as fantastic as he was, he wasn't a big name, especially in New York. No, cult, cult artist, comedy. yeah. Right, right. So I had my comedy album and I had no idea, you know. At that time, I wasn't aware yet that every musician in the world is a huge fan of jokes. They just are. And it mm -hmm. makes total sense because music is mathematical, jokes are mathematical. You know, it, it, I could go on and on forever. So I finagled my way, snuck past whoever, and walked up behind Steve and just put my album under his arm and pushed his arm closed. And I, and I just patted him on the back and said, just give it a listen. And thanks, man, you know. And Steve Goodman is as generic a Jewish name as there is. And I live on Long Island. So I come home one day, and my brother, Bobby, says, uh, hey, Jackie, some guy named Steve Goodman called. And as he said it... <laughs> <laughs> he realized, because I had turned him on, he says, oh, Jesus. That's that, Steve said, what Goodman. He said, he said, tell Jackie I'm a big fan. I really enjoyed the album. I'm playing it for all my friends. But I'm like, holy Christ. And then it, I and wound up getting a letter from some friend of his that said, I heard your album at Steve's house. He was over, he was over my house. Wow. Gone. So and then I wound up, you know, and then he passed away, and I wound up being friends, like, with his daughter. She put on some kind of show in the city, you know, but uh, but he was just uh, to this day, you know, my sister and her husband. That uh, my sister played. I could almost cry. She plays the Dutchman all the time, and, uh, oh, and yeah. he was he, he was just a Chicago guy, and you know, and he played at the the place that was literally almost across the street from Zanies. Yeah. You know uh, what I mean? Yeah. Um, the old town, Earls of Old Town. It was Earls of Old Town. Yeah, there was there was um, on, on Wells Street there. Yeah. Right. Now, you know the whole history of Zanies, right? No, I don't. Zanies was a whorehouse. Zanies was a whorehouse. The, the original Zanies on Wells was a whorehouse. Wow. It was constantly getting busted. So the owner, Rick Hewitt, made it into an X-rated bookstore <laughs> so the girls could do the guys in the back, and it still kept getting busted. He would jump out the window in the back, so he finally said, fuck this. And made it into a comedy club. And when you worked the comedy club, you stayed above the club. And I swear to you, the walls of the bedrooms or whatever the rooms were, they were red velvet. You couldn't make it up. It was fucking red velvet. And me and Larry Reaver up there fucking the same whore with the red velvet walls. And it was so funny. And like, uh, and and he was so shy. So he would be, he wouldn't be in the same room. And then. He said, Jackie, get out of the room. And I got out of the room. And of course, I'm peaching around watching her. And uh, so we decided this was so funny. We said, all right, we got to, I, I wonder if he would remember this. I said, we said, you know, we got to get out of here. Let's go get something to eat or something. And the girl says, okay. And Larry says, hold on. I got to go to the bathroom. So he goes to go to the bathroom. And I said, yeah. And the girl says, I got a poem. And I, I had this on my micro cassette recorder forever. No idea whatever happened to it. But she said, now it's time for us to get, and Larry's got to take a shit. <laughs> I swear to you on my mother. <laughs> we went and got drunk and listened to that over and over. Oh, God. That's what a character. And I hear he's still around, still working, you know. 
You know, that's just one of a million road stories I could probably pull from you. I mean, every comic that I know that hits the road, the shit they come back with and tell me, I'm like, oh my God, that's the, that is the true show business out there. It's the road stories that take place on the road. You know, things that happen after gigs in small towns in Kentucky and, oh. You know, I'll tell you, the, uh, when I first did 922 Wine, I had, hundreds and hundreds and thousands of these little yellow stickers. I don't know if you've ever seen one. <clears throat> 516-922-WINE. I'll send, I'll, I'll send you an image of it. And I put them up everywhere. And I mean everywhere. And the stories were so great. Like there was a time I worked at Zany's in Nashville. And after the show, the guy said, come on, we're going to go see uh, what's her face? One of the big country stars, her band played someplace out of town. So we went to see this band in this little godforsaken place. And I put a 922 wine sticker in the bathroom. And then afterwards, we went to some little shithole diner to have breakfast. And I put up stickers in the bathroom. Weeks later, somebody said, holy Christ, I was working in Nashville. And after the show, we went to see this band. And I went in to take a leak. And there's a 922 wine sticker. And then we went to a diner. And he said, I felt like I was... Like I was stalking Jackie Martin. <laughs> and then there was a girl who had a, uh, an apartment, and these girls used to come to see us at the Florida comic strip. And, you know, we used to bang all these girls. And the girl had a party, and we went to her house, and I went into the bathroom and lifted up the, the top of the tank of the bathroom of the toilet, and I put a 922 wine sticker just above the water line. You know, there's a water line. <laughs> right, I put a 922 wine sticker. So that New Year's Eve, she had a big party. So there were a lot of people at her house. So, of course, the toilet overflowed. So somebody went in there and took the top off the tank. And he, he said, oh, my shit, there's a 922 wine sticker. <laughs> it's haunting people across the you country. Can't, you cannot make that crap up. And, you know. I mean, most of the guys that remember all that stuff are dead now. But that, but it was great, great, great. I know I'm, I'm I know I'm keeping you on too long. You're not that. keeping me on too long. I talk to you all day long. I want to come visit you in New York and have dinner. I, uh, I can't tell you how many laughs you brought to my life. And from growing up and wondering who you were when I would hear you on the radio with Steve Dahl when he would play, you know, he would call your number and then I would call it and grab jokes. And to watching your career throughout. Uh, Stand up on the old VHS and cable. That was, you know, that was amazing stuff. Uh, above and beyond, you're making me laugh forever. You have, uh, you've been an inspiration the way that you've gone at it and your your approach to well, the that, art. That is, the uh, that is, I always told people I went through my life like a pinball game. This led, to, there was never, ever the, any inkling in my head about doing radio. But the guy called me from local radio BAB and said, we want to put 922 wine on the radio, but you got to do a special one because it's too dirty. So this guy, Bob Buckman, they called me on the air at 8 o'clock for years. And uh, I would tell jokes and then get too dirty and then insult Buckman, and he'd set off a bomb and then play the number one song of the week. And I got a letter saying, oh, our ratings went up 50%, blah, blah, mm. blah, you know. And the first time Stuttering John walked onto the show, he came in and said, you're the guy from BAB. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> just just fun. Just fun. I could spend all day with you. It's an honor and a pleasure to speak with you. Do not ever hesitate to call. All right. Jackie Martling, man, thank you so much. Thank you so much, Mike. 
Well, I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Mike Tomano Happening. Tell your friends and uh, help spread the word that we're having a lot of fun here. I want to thank my guest, Jackie Martling, all the folks at Fossil Entertainment Group, our musical director, Mike Rockert, and most of all, thank you for listening. Next week, we visit with comedy writing legend Tom Leopold. Rock on. If I ever meet you, we're not going to have anything to talk about. (laughs) The Mike Tamano Happening.